Um, all right, let's go back to Romans chapter 7 and, and continue our look at um, this very complex and intricate. Let's, uh, let's start this way. Let me uh, start with a, just a bit of a reminder as to what Paul is up to. Uh, um, if, if we know a little bit about where the context, it, it certainly will help. This uh, section, but really the entire chapter of Romans 7, but particularly Paul really gets going, beginning in verse 7, seeking to answer an impression that he is afraid is held by his readers slash audience. The impression is, is voiced in verse 7, is the law sin or is the law sinful? Um, based on several comments that Paul has made, one in Romans 5, one in Romans 6, and one in Romans 7, um, he is afraid that his audience is going to conclude that the law is of no purpose, of no value, um, and even bordering on sin. That's the question he's addressing. Is the law sin, says his audience? And in reply to that, what you find is the remaining verses of chapter 7. He is trying to demonstrate that, uh, in fact, he even says in verse 7, on the contrary, not only is it not sin, but it serves a very valuable and a very useful role in the life, uh, in, in, in the, it, it serves a very useful role. And um, uh, so that's what he's trying to do now, is explain to folks, and you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, that question is still misunderstood today by vast majorities. That is the role and proper functioning of the law. There are still massive amounts of people who are convinced that if they can somehow give some passing obedience to the law, then when they stand before God, all will be well. That is not the role of the law. It has never been the role of the law. It was not the role of the law in Exodus 20. So, not only can it not justify you, but um, the concern that, that comes up or crops up in the mind of the believer is, can it sanctify you? And so Paul is pointing out the proper understanding of the law's usefulness. So that's what he's up to. Let me read to you verses 7 and 8. We looked at 7 last week. We'll look at 8 tonight. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Um, for I, there, There's one of the positive roles of the sin. I wouldn't have known uh, positive roles of the law. I would not have known sin. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Now here's the text under consideration tonight. But sin, <clears throat> taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. What you get in verse 8 is, is a bit of, it's a word of explanation, really, of verse 7. Paul has given you a little bit more data concerning what he's meaning in verse 7. But in his so doing, he gives us kind of a, um, uh, <clears throat> he takes us a little bit, st a step deeper into, um, into his own struggle over sin. 
So you're getting a chance to look at what went on or what went on in the heart of Paul in this, in this um, section of Romans 7. Now, guys, what you're going to get, and, and I thought I might just leave up a, a few key words tonight. I don't know whether that will help you or not. I hope. But what you're going to get in this text and in some subsequent verses is an anatomy of sin. And I have to tell you that, 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 that Paul's uh, description, that this, this biblical doctrine of sin is severe indeed. What, what Paul states here is far more sweeping than we ever dreamed. And, and are almost willing to admit. Um, what you find in this little section is that, that, that sin is so powerful that it can even use God's law to its own ends and to accomplish its own purposes. Now, um, guys, let me say again that um, what you're going to find in Romans 7 is not something you're really accustomed to thinking. Because we have really um, um, muted, in, 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 in every way that we possibly can, a biblical doctrine of sin. And this is going to describe you in a way that you haven't seen much of. Um, it is, I, I, I'm, I'm warning you, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prepare you really, it is a, it is a, um, a description of the principle and power of sin in our lives that is, um, that is pretty staggering. Now, before we go too far, um, let me just point to something that's one of my, one of my favorite things to say. Do you know the, uh, you know, in fact, Gracie Van started with a series on Luke chapter 7. Um, it, many of you were not around then. Some of you were. But back, um, back in 91, back in February of 91, uh, there was a, a series that I did on the book of Hosea, and I concluded in Luke chapter 7. And the, the thing that drew me, or draw, continues to draw me, to Luke chapter 7, is really what's stated by Jesus in verse 47, where he says, uh, Therefore I say to, uh, to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, here's my point, guys. Do you see the principle that's contained in Luke 7.47? It is when you are mindful, or when you are of the opinion that your sin is little and you have been forgiven of little, you tend to love little. Now, the, the converse is also true, and it's even stated in verse 7. She was forgiven a great deal, therefore she loved a lot. So, so you see the principle. When you are aware of only a little bit of sin of which you have been forgiven, the tendency is to love little. But when you are aware of the monumental accomplishment of Jesus Christ for our sin, the tendency is to love more. Guys, um, what is your estimate of the evangelical church 
in the 21st century? Do you, do you find great amounts of outpourings of love for the Savior? It's okay, guys. We don't have any severe weather tonight. Um, what is your estimate? What, how do you, how do you um, when you look over the evangelical uh, landscape, do you see, and you, you see it in, in various places and pockets and in people, but in the main, wouldn't you agree that there is a paucity of, of deep, abiding affection for the Savior? Okay, now, guys, my point is, why is that? Well, one of the reasons is we do not know of what we have been forgiven. Because when you are forgiven little, you love little. But when you are aware of them, the enormity of what you have been forgiven, it seems to produce greater, it it elicits greater amounts of love. Now, I, I say that to say this. You go back to Romans 7 and this this doctrine of sin, it is so severe. But guys, what it, what it ought to and what it can produce in us is a deeper affection for the accomplishments of the, of the Savior on our behalf. And that's my... That's my uh, I, I'm not here to lecture you about how, um, how enormous is our sin. That's got, that's got to happen, and it's going to happen. But the hope is that the result of that would be hearts that are warmer, hearts that are, and and I've been saying this for 13 years, it's our defective view of sin that is, that produces little love. A a better understanding of the biblical doctrine of sin will produce larger amounts of love because we see just how much the Savior accomplished on our behest. Now, you'll notice in verse 8 that it says, but sin now, there's a little distinction that you have to make, and, um, and, and I think you've got this one down, but let me just make it for, um, for uh, just for old time's sake. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. This is not a description, ladies and gentlemen, of sins. This is what Paul has in view here is sin as a principle, sin as a power. And the the issue is not our sins. The issue is sin as a principle. Sin as a power in our lives. Uh, You know the distinction, I think. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is, there is a principle within that gives rise to individual acts of defiance and rebellion, to sins with an S. That's not what Paul is describing here. He's not describing our sins. He is describing sin as a principle that dwells within us. It's not individual acts of sin that he has in mind here. It is... um, it is that thing that dwells inside and in some form dwells inside of us all even today. Now, uh, having said that, we're told that that principle, that sin principle within us, taking opportunity by the commandment. But guys, I'm going to do something here that's going to uh, confuse you a bit. But um, some of you who are really 
Some of you who really know what's at stake at Romans 7 are going to get this. But it ain't going to be many of you. Um, because I'm not sure that you really know the, the enormous dialogue that goes on about Romans 7. Um, and the big issue is, what kind of human being is Paul trying to describe? Is he trying to describe an unregenerate man, a regenerate man, or something in between? Um, and I mean, have you ever heard of the R7 man? The Roman 7 man? You know, what is Paul describing? The reason I introduced that here is because of something that's in verse 8. And I want you to see it real quick because it influences how you understand. Let me show you this. Look at that last part of Romans 8, uh, verse 8. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You see that? Now look at it, folks. Uh, you, you notice the, the verb was. And very frankly, some of your translations don't have that word. You have the word is. Uh, the NIV, the New American Standard, has the word is. Whereas uh, King James, New King James, and uh, maybe others, has the word was. You see that? What is interesting about that word? No, 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 you missed it. Look at the word. What's interesting about the word? No. It's italicized, which means what? It's been inserted. It's not in the Greek text. Your is and my was are both inserted. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, but it's not in there. Uh, is everybody else's italicized? Well, it should be because there's not a verb. No, there's no verb in the Greek text. It's been supplied. Now, guys, now what's the difference in is and was? Present and past. So, so do you see, ladies and gentlemen, the, the debate begins right away. Are you, is Paul describing a condition of the past? Or is he describing a condition that is present? And the, the, the translators of your editions differ, obviously, because one of them inserted is, the others inserted was. I just want you to know that, and, and this is going to unfold over the next weeks and months, I mean, the real struggles of Romans 7 don't happen, don't start until verse 14. But you're getting, you're getting ready to get to it. And you see it right here in verse 8. I, I say that to say this. I am much more comfortable with the past tense. That Paul is describing a condition of the past. Which would mean that he is describing in this verse... An unregenerate heart. You see, if it's an is, he's describing a regenerate heart. I am much more comfortable, and I think it is much more true to the, to the whole um, message of Romans 7. I mean, was is much more true to where I'm going to take you in terms of understanding what kind of man Paul is describing. Now, having said that, this description of sin is something that was true of us in the past. That is, I'm saying that Paul is describing 
an unregenerate heart here. But guys, do you see? Because there's no, there's no verb, you've really got to wrestle with a lot of things before you come up whether it's a was or an is. Alright, now, so I'm going to treat it as if you, as if the was is, is helpful and accurate and true because I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is describing an unregenerated heart. Alright? Now, and, uh, and, and in regard to that, in that unregenerate heart, the law came and did something to that unregenerate heart, of course, accompanied by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, did something to that unregenerate heart, and that was the, that's what he's trying to teach us, is the role that the law plays. Alright? Alright. I'm sure you're quite confused. That was my intention, is to confuse all of you and then, you know, sneak out of here and <laughs> act like I'm not. Alright. But sin. A principle of sin. Taking opportunity by the commandment. Sin used the law much as, much as, as we would use a fulcrum. I mean, do you remember that little principle that you learned in physics about what a fulcrum is? You know, you have a, you have a big old rock over here that you want to move. And you can't, so what you do is you, you set this thing up here, and you take this pole, and then you stand over here, and um, you push the pole down, and uh, this thing acts as a fulcrum to lift that. Oh, don't be that. <laughs> this is a rough crowd. Uh, but, but anyway, the point is, sin used the law like a fulcrum, uh, like, like a fulcrum works, so sin uses the law as a fulcrum and was able to, to move um, whatever resistance I had um, to individual acts of sin. That is, when the law came, ladies and gentlemen, sin is such a powerful principle within us, it can even use the law of God to produce this desired result. Now, um, I think the commandment that he has in view here is the one that he had in view in verse 7. Of course, it would be number 10, thou shalt not covet. But notice in the text, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Sin's attempt was successful. Sin is, is, is something that works and can work so powerfully. How does sin do that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is a perversity that lies in the hearts of each of us. Um, there, there is a desire on the part of the unregenerate man to do something for no other reason than for the reason that it's forbidden. Um, it, is, it is the law that illuminated that in the heart of Paul. The law came... And illuminated the the um, this all manner of evil desire, guys. Um, what is it that that Paul saw? What he saw is the state of his own heart. Now, guys, again, I I'm suggesting that he is describing the heart as it existed in its unregenerate state. Now, here is a nice description. Of that heart. Um, this is uh, Genesis chapter six, and it says, 
Um, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, my friend, um, you who sit here as a, as a regenerate, saved human being, I, I want you to know that what God has done by placing the Holy Spirit within your, your heart is that he's working on that heart. But I want you to know that's the heart he's working on. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the raw material that has been entrusted to the Holy Spirit of God to do something with. You remember, I said that the biblical doctrine of sin is severe. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. That is the picture of the heart in its unregenerate state. And here's what happens. The law comes to that unregenerate heart and it demands a certain action, a certain virtue, a certain kind of behavior, a certain lifestyle. But the, but the perversity, the corruption that is already in my heart reacts to that demand and, um, and, and longs to break that demand even with more violence. So the passions that heretofore have laid um, somewhat undetected until the law comes to speak its restriction to that heart, that law then exposes the real condition of that heart. I, I, I am prompted by the law to, to, to desire the very things that the law forbids. Um, whatever is prohibited by the law is, is, is now more eagerly desired than ever before. I long for it just because it's forbidden. So um, the, the law, far from subduing sin, it increases my desire, it arouses my desire to do what it prohibits. Although it, it might, for a while, restrain the external act of um, the external act that's described in the law. But you will remember, I hope, that Jesus is after far more than some kind of external outward obedience to law. Whereas it might produce or succeed in restraining an outward act. What it has aroused is passions that lay dormant until the law notified me that those things were prohibited. You know, guys, um, concerning the outward and inward, you know, you've heard this story before, but it does, I, I couldn't think of anything better. It does make the point. Um, you, you've heard about the little five-year-old girl that was in church with her mother, and, and the, the preacher's waxing eloquent, and, and uh, the little girl stands up in the pew, and her mother is just appalled, and so she yanks her little five-year-old back down to the pew to sit down, and... and um, uh, then, um, you know, three minutes later, she stands up again, and, and her mother just is so embarrassed and yanks her down. And then about four minutes later, she stands up again, and the mother yanks her down and says, Little lady, you sit down and don't you budge out of that pew. Don't you dare stand up again. The little girl looks at her mother and says, uh, 
And about three minutes later, she taps her mother on the shoulder and she says, Mommy, on the outside, I'm sitting. But on the inside, I'm standing. <laughs> Guys, whereas the law might succeed in, in, in restraining some kind of external act, what it has done, being told not to stand, makes me desire to stand all the more. The very thing that is prohibited is now aroused as a desire just because it's prohibited. Just because it is forbidden. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a picture of your heart in an unregenerate state. And by the way, and I'm really, um, one of the great blessings of the gospel is that Jesus Christ didn't just die for your sin and stick a ticket to your heaven. He also entrusted the Holy Spirit of God that is working on that heart. But that's the heart. You're not, you're not a, you know, guys, I'm going to use some. I'm going to use some Puritan language. My wife is just scared to death about what I'm about to say right now. Um, um, but the Puritans used to describe men as a stench in the nostrils of God. And that's not very comely in the 21st century. That's not very welcome. But guys, imagine now, if you, if you view yourself like that, and then you discover that you've been delivered from that by Jesus Christ, what does that, what does that tend to produce in you? Less or more gratitude. And one of the reasons that the Christian church has such a paucity of fervor for the Savior is because nobody told you that you were a stench in the nostrils of God. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart we're only evil continually. My friend, that heart of Genesis 6 beats in your breast. And it is being softened and changed by the resident Holy Spirit in the lives of all of us. But that's what he's working with. That's the, that's the raw material that he works with. Oh my goodness. Um, again, back to this fulcrum idea. Um, the... the Um, sin uses law as its fulcrum, and this is how it does it. It arouses in us that, that element of rebellion that, that is there all along. Uh, you know, guys, we are all born rebels. You know, guys, um, you know, there's a lot of scarring in my three daughters. Uh, they're primarily scarred because of the model of their daddy. Um, you know, bullheaded, um, self-absorbed, pompous. They learned all that from my wife. The other things they, no, but all of those things, yeah, I, I'll take full blame for. Not, maybe not full blame, but there are things in the breast of my daughters that I did not teach them because I didn't have to. They're born rebels. Just like mommy and daddy. And what the law does, ladies and gentlemen, this, um, this self-assertiveness, 
is confronts, or the law confronts it head on, and our autonomy is threatened. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what that word is? It is the word so dear to 21st century man. Autonomy. You know what that means? Self-rule. I want no rule but self-rule. And by the way, just as an aside, guys, it is pluralism and relativism that serves autonomy. If all truth is relative and all, all religions are the same, then, then I can be the one at the center of the universe. Those things, and, and, and you know, don't you see it getting worse? You know, maybe I'm jaundiced, but I don't think so. You know, speaking of that, I, um, this past Monday, uh, you know, of course, was Martin Luther King Day, and, and I was shaving on, on, um, on my, and I listen to a radio while I shave. I have a little radio sitting right where I shave, and, and um, uh, this, this, they were having this thing with, I don't know what it was. It was some kind of program to celebrate the day, and, and, um, um, and this, it was a female disc jockey, and, and she got a caller, and this guy, he was obviously not American. He was obviously from some other nation around the world. Well, it turned out in, the, in, the, in their dialogue, he was from Ghana. And he, called, he said he was from West Ghana. I didn't know there was a West and East Ghana, but there, anyway, he's from Western Ghana. And he was a dear guy, but anyway, this DJ uh, um, you know, engaged him in conversation, this female DJ. And um, they were talking about what the world needs. And this DJ says... You know, we just need to be better people. And it needs to start with me and you. And this little guy on the phone, yeah, yeah, that's what we need. We need to be better people. It needs to start with me and you. Now, my point is, tell a heart that every intent of the thoughts of its heart is only evil continual. Tell them to be a better person because that's what the world needs. What good do you think you're going to do? What result is going to, is going to come of that? It is, it is foolhardy, ladies and gentlemen. I said it once, I've said it a million times, that the issue is not to tell people to go be better. The issue is the gospel. The only thing that's going to change that heart is not some kind of program for everybody to be better. The thing that's going to change the heart and thus the behavior is the gospel. So more law, just giving them more behavioral standards, is not going to be a solution for a culture that loves autonomy. Um, the, the law comes and reveals my, my, my sense of rebellion. My autonomy is threatened by God. I resent the fact that, there's a, that there is law. Um, I, I, I then conclude that the law is unfair. It goes too far. Uh, the very idea that the law would say it has something to do with my thoughts. That's, that's too far. That's my purview. That's, that's, that's my realm. You, you violated my private domain to tell me that uh, you can tell me how to think. By the way, I don't tell you. The, the, the law does. And um, as the law prohibits those certain things... It sets me to thinking about those certain things that are prohibited. And then it begins to really appeal to me. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what's being taught in verse 8. How do you like that? 
the, the biblical doctrine of sin, ladies and gentlemen, pays you no compliments. It pays none of us any compliments. What it does is provide a solution. And that solution, bless God, is in the finished and accomplished work of a Savior who is perfectly obedient to that law. But the law is not going to restrain sin. It does nothing but arouse it. And once Paul saw that, he longed for a Savior. Now, remember, what's his purpose in Romans 7? It's to demonstrate the proper use and functioning of the law. So he says, the law came, and by it, it took advantage, it took occasion, and it produced all manner of evil desire. In me. You know, I, I, I said last week that the purpose of the law is, to, is not simply to uh, demonstrate that, um, that, law, that, that sin exists. Um, he, he says in verse 7, I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. Thank you, law. But then in verse 8, he goes a little step further and says... I would not have known sin exists in me were it not for the proper administration functioning of law. So, to set that thing aside and say it's of no use, oh no. Bless you, law. Bless you, law, that you exposed this in me so that I could then discover the beauty of the finished work of Jesus Christ for people just like me. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, find, beginning to build in the hearts of your people, a greater sense of appreciation and love and gratitude for what Jesus has accomplished. He didn't deliver us from, from minor league sin because we're such good, law-abiding United Way giving people. He produced us, he, he delivered us from major league sin. The need that I had for Savior wasn't a small need. It was an enormous need. And so we bless you, O God, for first providing a means by which we could discover the condition of our own heart. And then for providing a Savior that could deliver us from that kind of evil desire. What a gospel we have to preach, O oh God. And what a life we have to live now that this heart has been changed by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit of God. We commit ourselves, Father, to a, um, to a life of obedience and ask for great grace to perform. In obedience. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.